electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Faber's at HQ. Kramer's on assignment. Future's a bit soggy here as investors await CPI tomorrow and a 10-year note auction this afternoon. Oil's a bit elevated on a new round of Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, 10 years below four. Our roadmap begins with watching tech. RBC downgrading the sector. And one Apple analyst sees, quote, little room for upside. Also, NVIDIA notching its best two-day gain since last March. Plus, approved or not approved, the SEC is investigating a fake post on its X account as investors await the fate of Bitcoin ETFs. And HPE acquiring Juniper Networks for $14 billion. CEO Antonio Neri joins us later this hour. Let's begin with the markets this morning. Uh, we're sort of in a bit of a lull where the elements from conference season are beginning to fade. Uh, J.P. Morgan Healthcare, of course, CES, ICR, awaiting CPI tomorrow and the banks on Friday. The this chatter, Sarah, is largely about whether or not uh, CPI nudges up a bit, takes us back to three three year on year as far as consensus sees it. We know it's we know it's very important when you get the scenario analysis from the trading notes on Wall Street, and that and that's out right now. As long as CPI stays in line, which is 0.2 to 0.3%, say, on the headline of an increase. And I think that the details matter here as well, because we know the Fed is watching core CPI, and that strips out food and energy, which is more volatile. And we want to see that year-over-year number below 4%, right? 4% is this sort of sticky, double the Fed's inflation target 2%, David. Look, there are some reasons to be optimistic. Used vehicles continue to decline. Hotel and airfare, some of those services, sector components, communication services should continue to decline. But there are also parts of it that are sticky, like shelter and rent, which have, which have been slower to moderate in terms of prices. We've also seen medical care costs, insurance costs continue to rise, and that affects the core of the CPI as well. So... That's the big market mover. Comes out on Thursday. Otherwise, we'll hear this this afternoon, 315, from New York Fed President Williams. And there'll be a lot of positioning ahead of this inflation report. Yeah. Uh, you know, in listening to Double Line Capital's uh, Jeffrey Gunlock, I felt like he was channeling you, Sarah. <laughs> I mean, yesterday you were talking about that, uh, you know, the curve de-inverting, highly suggestive of a recession. He even wanted to talk about the dollar. I don't know if we have it but we, or with a quote from him, but we can take a listen. Uh, as he sort of, again, he's always worth the listen, doesn't mean he's always right. But uh, yeah. uh, but it was, uh, you know, him saying basically it's highly suggestive of a recession. I think dollar's going to have big problems in the next recession as a consequence of the policies that we run uh, to try to deal with what could be a very, again, painful. There's that word again, Sarah, recession. Mm-hmm. So the question is, is he is he late? Because he's been calling for a recession since early last year. Or is he wrong? Because the consensus now does not expect a recession, expects the economy to get away with the soft landing. But you're right. He's looking at the signals that the that the recession camp is looking at, the inversion of the yield curve, which has been inverted now for a really long time and has been steepening, which could signal recession. The leading economic indicators, which, you know, at these levels predict 
recession, the lags in monetary policy, there's still a case for that. And I think that when you're focused on the bond market, look, he manages $100 billion in assets and, and is a fixed income investor. You've got to pay attention to things like that. It would be a correction for the equity markets, which is just which have been resilient, mostly on this idea, Carl, that the economy is looking good. Even fourth quarter GDP, Atlanta Fed, I mean, they took it down a little bit, but it's still printing above 2% growth at this at this level. Uh, indeed. Um, it, tying in with CPI, of course, is some geopolitics and this latest attack from the Houthis, uh, from Houthi-controlled Yemen into the southern part of the Red Sea. CENTCOM with an interesting uh, tweet last night. This is the 26th attack now uh, since November 19th. And J.P. Morgan took a crack at this yesterday, Sarah, mm. uh, uh, sort of arguing that the additional uh, time it takes to go around Africa, another 10 days, and the way in which Suez traffic is down 30% since mid-December uh, sort of reinforces their view that, that global core CPI uh, uh, easing is going to stall out. Because of shipping costs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, we're, shipping rates are elevated. They've jumped as a result of these attacks. They're nowhere near levels that we saw during COVID. And I think the prevailing view is that they won't be sustained and that the Fed can't do anything about this. You know, the... the the government is going to do it. And, and the U.S. and the U.K. responded yesterday to these attacks. It's certainly a factor we're watching, along with, David, other geopolitical issues. You know, I, I keep repeating this stat. Countries with 60 percent of the world's population are going to be voting this year. We're going to get a Taiwan election in a few days. Obviously, we have the U.S. election coming this year. I mean, investors are paying attention. It's never easy to game out how it's going to necessarily impact the markets. But... We, we are watching it, and I think there's some heightened alert about volatility. Uh, it seems a little early, though, doesn't it, Sarah, in some for ways? For the U.S. Yeah, certainly maybe. for the U.S. I know uh, we got India. We've got a few others, right? Whose note was that, that that pointed that out as a key thing this as in this coming year? I forget. I don't know. A bunch of them. Yeah, I've read it in a few notes. Um, uh, we're going to talk to Ann Bremmer in, the, in, in Money Movers about some of the risks, including Taiwan, which is coming up. Uh, yeah, elections on Sunday. Uh, China stocks, by the way, hovering just about near a five-year low uh, this morning. Let's talk about this wild ride surrounding Bitcoin uh, last night. The SEC, as you may know, denying it is approved spot Bitcoin ETF, saying yesterday afternoon's post on X stated otherwise was false and that its account on the site had been compromised. Our Eamon Javers was all over this last night, and we'll watch it today as well. Morning, Eamon. Yeah, good morning, guys. We got a little new information about the hack of the SEC's Twitter, now X account, last night from a posting by X's security team. Now, remember that, as you say, Carl, in the 4 p.m. hour yesterday, the SEC's official account published a statement suggesting that a Bitcoin ETF had been approved. That triggered Bitcoin prices. But within moments, the SEC said it was not true and their account had been compromised. Overnight, X posted a statement saying... The compromise was not due to any breach of X's systems, but rather due to an unidentified individual obtaining control over a phone number associated with the at SECGov account through a third party. X also said that the SEC account did not have two-factor authentication enabled at the time of the hack. Now, that's a standard extra layer of protection, and it's going to raise questions about why the SEC did not take that obvious security step on such a high-profile account. I reached out to the SEC this morning for their side of all this. I have not heard back from them yet. We'll update you as soon as we do. And, of course, there is some rich subtext to all of this, guys. As you know, X is owned by Elon Musk, who has been a bitter critic of the SEC for years. So the blame game here could be particularly 
pointed and we'll follow it throughout the day as we try to figure out exactly what happened and who made and lost money and of course the manhunt now for whoever did this guys back over to you uh, Eamon, it's David. I just find it shocking that they could not have t- that they did not have two-factor authentication on that account. Yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. it should be standard for every single person who's watching us, for any of their financial accounts, or frankly, for virtually anything at this point. I I, I don't even yeah. know how they explain it. I mean, you know, you can do yeah. it from home. I know they well, still may be working from home, many of them, but you can even do two-factor authentication from home. You don't have to be in the <laughs> office. Yeah. One of the things, uh, so a lot to unpack there, right? One of the questions is going to be the, the X statement said they did not have two-factor authentication enabled at the time of the hack. So one question that raises in my mind is, did the SEC ever in the past have two-factor authentication and perhaps uh, it somehow was undone in some way? And remember, X has had a big push on uh, to get people to pay for two-factor authentication, removing it uh, in some cases from non-premium uh, account holders, people who don't pay for the for the X account. So I've got some questions around when did the SEC have two-factor authentication in the past, if they did, and under what circumstances was that removed, if it was. So we're going to have to really dig in here and get some answers from both X and SEC on this because there's some some possibilities here that are really intriguing. And and as we say, there's the blame game going on now between X and SEC. Neither one wants to be holding the blame for this. Well, it's particularly rich when you go back to um, Cyber Awareness Month, hashtag Cyber Awareness Month, which was back in, in October. There's a Gary Gensler tweet that literally says, there's a reminder to secure your financial accounts as well as protect against identity theft and fraud. Remember to set up multi-factor authentication and use strong passwords yeah. or phrases. Also, you know, Eamon and David, the, the SEC has been really on top of this issue of, of cyber security. Yeah. They put in place new rules, I think, that just went into effect that force you know, public companies to disclose more when they are attacked. Yeah. I know the SEC is not a public company, but they're going to have to disclose a lot of information here. It raises a lot of questions. That, those rules just went into effect in December, Sarah. You're exactly right. And, and a lot of public companies are now feeling under the gun to disclose a whole lot more than they did in the past as a result of the SEC pushing them on cyber disclosures. We're going to have to see now whether the SEC follows its own rules here. They don't necessarily apply to the SEC, but in good faith, will they follow their own rules and disclose uh, exactly what they're as much as they can about what they know about what happened here? You know, how did this exactly happen? Was it social engineering? Was somebody bribed inside the SEC? Was somebody hacked? Most likely, you know, it's simply a phishing attack that tricked somebody into clicking and filling out their credential information, and some bad actor somewhere in the world got that information. Then the big question is, who done it? Uh, someone made a lot of money here, I would guess, right? Because you saw the, the price of Bitcoin spike there. You see it on the screen right now, just before 5 p.m., about 4.11 p.m. last uh, afternoon uh, when the prices really spiked. Knowing that in advance that that spike was coming was worth a lot of money to somebody. Will that person get caught? Will they be punished? That's a whole other set of questions, guys. Yeah. Uh, well, Eamon, thank you. And, of course, speaking of Bitcoin, you can see it is going to be down, although we're still waiting for the actual approval of that uh, Bitcoin ETF. Uh, more on that a bit later. Let's move on now to the grounding of 171 Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft. The company's CEO, David Calhoun, saying the jet maker needs to acknowledge its mistake in relation to the Alaska Air blowout incident. Phil LeBeau's on the phone. He has the latest for us. Phil. David, we are in the 737 MAX plant in Renton, Washington, where we'll be talking with Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun later today. You mentioned that safety town hall meeting yesterday. If you listen to the audio or if you watch some of the clips that Boeing put out, 
it is clear what a change in tone there is from Dave Calhoun compared to previous CEO Dennis Mullenberg during the max crashes and the groundings that happened in 2018. During the town hall, uh, Calhoun was very frank in saying, look, we need to acknowledge our mistake. Every detail matters. And there wasn't any talking. This was uh, an audience of workers who clearly are impacted by what they saw on the Alaska airplane, Alaska Airlines airplane on Friday night. Let me bring you up to speed in terms of the MAX 9 investigation and where things stand. The NTSB is analyzing data. We will not hear from the NTSB probably for many weeks, if not months. This is going to be meticulous work in order to analyze not only the door plug, but also any spare parts that are ultimately found. They're still looking for the quote-unquote bolts that were part of holding that door in place. The FAA inspection rules for the grounded MAX 9, they have not been finalized yet. And so the length of the grounding is unclear. There was some thought that maybe by the end of this week we might see some of those feather back into service. Unclear at this point when that will happen. Boeing, by the way, has a safety team. This is an organ- basically a, an ad hoc committee, if you will, a group that they were put in place after the MAX crashes. They're going to be focused on what happened on Friday night with the door plug on that Alaska Airlines plane. Don't forget, we're going to be talking with Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun coming up this afternoon on The Exchange. This is a CNBC exclusive. You do not want to miss what Dave has to say, not only about where they are in terms of trying to figure out what happened on Friday night, but more importantly, addressing questions about the culture and quality control here at Boeing. Guys, back to you. Yeah, I mean, that's where I was going to go, Phil. I'm really looking forward to your conversation. And I do wonder, I'm sure the details matter on this incident, of course, but because it's been a string of problems in recent years, how Boeing and how he specifically combats this idea that they put profits before safety. That's in in a nutshell. Now, Dave Calhoun will tell you we are not putting profits before safety. Having said that, Sarah, you cannot deny that there have been a string of incidents over the last several months, some of them involving their primary supplier, Spirit Aerosystems. Some of them are self-inflicted wounds. And so the question becomes, you are the preeminent manufacturer, one of the preeminent manufacturers in the United States with a long and very um, detailed history in terms of tackling huge challenges. You've got to figure out how to make an airplane where there's no issues. And that's front and center for Dave Calhoun and his team right now. Uh, very complex, Phil. Uh, look forward to that interview this afternoon. That's our Phil LeBeau on the Boeing story today. When we come back, former SEC Chair Jay Clayton's here at Post 9 as we await some official decision from the regulator on spot Bitcoin ETFs. Take a look at the pre-market. As Sarah said, we'll get Williams this afternoon. Ten-year note auctions on deck. Uh, NASDAQ futures going positive. Got some calls on Home Depot. Toast, the third Apple downgrade of the year so far. When we come back. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash projectup.
Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street as we await an official decision from the SEC on a potential approval of a Bitcoin ETF. Our next guest says it's, quote, inevitable, and the time is here. Uh, Jay Clayton joins us, former SEC chair, CNBC contributors here at Post 9. Jay, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Nice to see you. So yesterday's news is what everybody's chatting about. I I don't even know if it's fair to ask you what you think happened. (laughs) Well, look, there was was a compromise, uh, obviously. And... And the question when something like this happens, and, it, and this isn't the only place or the only time it's happened, but immediate, what happened? You deal with it. You, you get operationally back where you were. It's clear the SEC is operationally back on board, right? And, and let me just address your question. I don't think that this should in any way affect whatever their time frame was for dealing with these ETF applications. Right? Because, well, there is some concern that it would push back any approval, if in fact approval was in the in the offing. What, what, whatever the path is, I don't think it should change because they're op, they're clearly operationally back where they were. They've ad, they've addressed this for the moment, and any good business, that's what you do. You address it, and you get operations back in order. Those that's the first thing you do. Which hasn't been done yet necessarily, right? No, I don't, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a continuing compromise of the SEC's Twitter account. Now, what you're going to is remediation, and and what do you do after you've you've gotten a handle on this? You get the facts. How did it happen? You communicate with your constituencies, and then you then you harden your processes so that it doesn't happen again. And that's that's now the phase that we're in from an SEC operation. But don't you standpoint. think there are some ironies here with this happening? The fight with Elon Musk, for instance, about tweeting material information, the fact that Gary Gensler has been hard on cybersecurity risk, that he's tweeted about multi-factor authentication. How much of a black eye is this for the SEC? Well, I, let, let, let's put it this way. I think it demonstrates that everybody needs better cyber hygiene and constant cyber hygiene. And yes, is there, it, look, let, let, let's not let's not bury that. Is there irony here? Are control systems part of the SEC's purview? Sure. Is market manipulation something that the SEC enforces and deals with? And are, and are both of those at issue here? Yes. Which is why I go back to what do you do? You communicate with your constituencies and tell them what you're doing to address those things. You're, you know, we're talking about what's going on at Boeing. I expect the CEO of Boeing will do a very good job communicating with shareholders and stakeholders. That's, that's the CEO's job, what they're doing to address the situation. I expect the SEC is going to do that um, in the coming hours and days. Why do you think it's time for this ETF? Uh, I have said it is inevitable. And the reason it's inevitable is all of the legal questions 
Um, and what I would say is the oversight questions that you have to deal with in a new product and an application like this have been addressed. People understand the, what I would say is the Bitcoin product, or if we call it a product, you know, how many Bitcoins they're going to be, how it's mined, what it's costing, how it's trading. Those were, those were issues that weren't fully understood. The trading in Bitcoin globally, really unregulated, has become what I would say is much more efficacious, much more trusted. You have financial institutions that are in the business of surveillance coming in and saying, look, we think we can surveil this market and we think this market is deep enough and robust enough that manipulation is at a minimum. When the, when the post happened yesterday, uh, our Bob Bassani was like, where's the press release? I don't see a press release yet. I wonder, do you think news flow from agencies on social media will change? Well, I, I think, I, let's, let's, let's be clear. There were some, I didn't see the post. I've now gone back and looked at it. There were indicia that there was something there, okay? It's not, the, it's not usually the first means of communication <laughs> right. for an agency. Usually official agency documents are attached to uh, distributions like this. You know, am I surprised that some people said and ran with it in light of the context and the timing? Of course not. You know, that's what happens. But were there indicia that this, that you may, you may have wanted to take a breath and say, really? Um, is this really, the, this is really the way the SEC is going to roll out something like this? I don't know. Gensler's pretty active on Twitter. Um, so you say that Bitcoin sh essentially should be trusted more. Right. And I just I can't I keep thinking of Jamie Dimon not too long ago saying that if he were the government, he would ban it. Let me let me let me say this. I didn't say Bitcoin should be trusted more. And I'm not saying that Bitcoin is going to be worth a lot or a little. What I'm saying is the dynamics of Bitcoin trading and people owning it are better understood and disclosed. And, and to go back to Carl's Are they? I mean, last year was a disastrous year as far as SBF and, and CZ and the criminal charges and the fines. It doesn't, it doesn't feel more trustworthy. Well, I don't think the offshore crypto ecosystem is any more trustworthy. But if you look at those frauds, they weren't involved in Bitcoin per se. The, the Bitcoin distributed ledger, um, as far as I can tell, is operating as it had been intended to from the beginning. So, but have people taken advantage of that and the euphoria, particularly offshore and unregulated places, to do really terrible stuff? Yes, they have. I think look, one of the things that's happening here is you're bringing Bitcoin, but also digital assets, into the regulated ecosystem. Finally, I don't. You don't think uh, if the SEC is about investor protection, mm -hmm. and this one happened to hit at home. But you don't think the communication to the investor community about relying on social media information will change? I, it should, okay? Um, we're all about it. People want to slow down communications. They want to regulate platforms. History tells us speed wins, <laughs> okay? So you got to accept speed and do what you can with it to make sure that it's more reliable, make sure that it's more trustworthy. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not, look, we trade here in microseconds, right? Right. I, I was actually, I just listened, listened to Lynn Martin yeah. speak to all those interns. Wonderful to see. You know what she said? Learn from your mistakes. Well said. Uh, Jay, appreciate you helping us understand it a little bit better uh, this morning. Okay. Good to see you. Jay Thanks, Clayton. Let's walk on the streets back after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet.
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Still to come on the show, the deal of the day. Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Antonio Neri, on his company's $14 billion deal today to acquire Juniper Networks and where AI fits into the strategy for growth. More Squawk on the Street when we come right back. Let's get the opening bell here in the CNBC real-time exchange of the big board. It is UNH Properties, a REIT, celebrating its 55th anniversary at the NASDAQ of Israel Bonds. As you watch some bets fill in, uh, S&P going to work to hold 47.60 here or so. Um, as we've had a pretty, obviously a lot of uh, things have not gone right here to date. The January first five days was red. LPL yesterday with a nice note saying we still have the full year January barometer with some 15 or so sessions left in the month. Um, Russell with quite a nice gain over 50 days as well. Bespoke saying that uh, best 50-day rally in the RUT since 2020. There have been some bullish calls on the Russell 2000 index of small caps Goldman's, lately. Goldman, yeah. Goldman says good setup for, for Russell 2000 outperformance because you have better than expected growth and really cheap valuations. And that combination should be powerful. They expect, Goldman Sachs expects Russell to outperform the S&P, the, the bigger caps so far this year. The other group I was just looking at at the open, you know, there's a lot of anticipation for CPI tomorrow, but we're also getting bank earnings this week. And that kind of kicks off the quarterly earnings period. And banks have been more in favor ahead of this earnings release. In fact, some of the JP Morgan looked at the positioning data on the banks and it's much more bullish heading into the report. Banks have had some nice outperformance and that goes along with the fact that small caps have done well and cyclically sensitive stocks have done well. David, as far as the banks, I mean, we're going to be looking for loan loss provisions. You know, those provisions for credit losses should continue to normalize. That would be a a good sign. Maybe resumption in, in loan activity because it's been a weak spot for all of 2023. That would be a signal that the economy looks better. Always important to monitor the comments from the CEOs as far as the consumer and the economy, consumer balance sheets, consumer checking accounts, and whether those continue to remain strong. But with the stabilization of interest rates, the group has been bid. For the, what are yeah. we, in the seventh trading day of the year? City is the outperformer. Uh, I remember that upgrade from Mike Mayo, right? That was sort of day one of the, of the new year in terms of trading, uh, saying he's a believer in terms of some of the changes Jane Fraser is trying to make at City actually coming uh, through in terms of execution and benefiting that institution. As you see, it's up a little less than, uh, uh, well, it's up 25% over the last two months. Um, guys, I did notice, and, you know, we're, as I said, this is what, our seventh trading day of the year, I believe. Uh, but we've already got some distinctive moves in terms of groups. Pharma, by far, uh, the outperformer. I mean, the likes of Merck is up over 8% so far this year. Um, you've got uh, 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 
J&J up over 3%, Gilead 9%, Amgen 6 plus percent. Some significant moves uh, there. Uh, of course, Pfizer sort of trails as it often does. Uh, and Bristol-Myers is actually not positive for the year, but generally quite a positive tone there. I did note Lori Calvacina in her most recent note where she downgraded tech to a market reform, points out her overweights are financials, which we just discussed, Sarah, and healthcare as well, also energy amongst them. But interesting move there. And then NVIDIA, you can't stop it, Carl. That stock is now up over 9%, a $1.33 trillion market value. Not that far away from challenging Amazon's $1.57 trillion value, but it has outperformed the MAG7 for sure. And chips overall, many of uh, the stocks of which are actually not performing particularly well so far this year. Yeah, uh, nice little, uh, even with the incredible chart from last year, David, look at a one year, you can see an, an even stronger tick at the very uh, far right side of that chart, up uh, almost 2% today, as we said earlier. Best two days now for NVIDIA since that earnings blowout last May. Um, and a bunch of other chip news today to watch. Intel talking about automotive. Qualcomm, I think, is presenting uh, this evening. Uh, TSM came in with earnings as well. Yeah, halted a sales decline in the fourth quarter. And just good news overall that we learned that global chip sales rose for the first time in more than a year as demand started to rebound and it's fueled by AI. Revenue hitting $4 billion in November, which was a 5.3% increase from a year earlier. There was also an interesting FT article, did you see, about NVIDIA in particular and, that, and Chinese companies repurposing some of the gaming chips as they're trying to, to work around the export controls. This has been kind of a swing factor for sentiment around NVIDIA, certainly coming out of last quarter, which is NVIDIA we know has been building new chips, I think three of them, to try to circumvent the export controls. And there have been mixed reports about China's demand for those chips. This would suggest, the FT article, that and I think there was a quote in there from an analyst that China was a little more desperate for them, which is why they're repurposing these gaming chips. Just a, a factor to watch as we head into earnings, which are not until February for NVIDIA with the stock marching higher. Yeah, yeah. I do report a little bit late. David, a ton of media news, which I think would be fun to bundle. Uh, I mean, a lot of it's relatively small, but uh, Warner with this new production deal with, uh, with Tom Cruise, the Disney ESPN drama, along with Mandalorian being made into a feature uh, directed by Jon Favreau. AMC, close to all-time lows. Uh, Comcast, Sunday Night Football, averaged 21.4 million viewers this regular season, up 8% year-on-year. There's a lot today. Way to go, Comcast. Yeah. And we got the big playoff game on Peacock, don't forget. I don't know what they're charging for Peacock these days, but it's a bargain at any price. Yeah. Um, and even, even IMAX, uh, global box office last year, almost $1.1 billion. That's close to a record yeah. as movies like Oppenheimer uh, sort of bolster Although, their business Although, as you model. say, Carl, AMC uh, near or at uh, new lows uh, and down some 18-plus percent, below a billion dollars in market value. You saw a, uh, IMAX there, which was a big beneficiary, as you pointed out, of Oppenheimer by far. It's, largest property over the course of the year. But there's a, uh, there's a look at AMC. Not even Taylor Swift can get, get, this, one, no. get this one going. No. I, I have to say, though, I saw Mean Girls this week. Highly recommend. Really? I saw you at the, the premiere <laughs> photo. Very yes. fun. So that's Tina the Fey one is brilliant. that was a movie, then it was a musical on Broadway, Correct. and now it's the musical movie. It's the musical version of the movie. And, and guess what? What? It is so good. It's good. Even though it's like repurposed a million times, it's wittier and fresher and funnier 
than ever. I loved it. But of course, I, the, the original for me was iconic. <laughs> Side note. Yes, um, in my household as well. <laughs> um, one sock that maybe we should be watching, because I thought there were some interesting announcements for Walmart. Did you see Doug McMillan giving a keynote speech at CES and announcing all sorts of new AI, generative AI improvements? This is something he teased in his interview with me a few weeks ago about how it's going to be serving the customer. They announced some new search, uh, for instance, search upgrades, I would say, based on AI. So now, just as an example, you can search hosting a, a football party instead of having to search individually for chips or for TVs or for guacamole, and it'll bring you sort of a list of what you need. That's just one example. They're also expanding the drone program on delivery in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and they say now that no retailer is doing it as, at much as scale as, as they're doing it, as, as sort of why there's the drone footage. We just wanted to show that. So they've done 20,000 drone deliveries over the last two years. They're expanding it to 1.8 million additional households. So they say that drone delivery to this many households has never been done in a single market. So that's an experiment as well as they're, they're, they're trying to compete, obviously, against Amazon and, and beef up the consumer experience with generative AI. It's a good, it's a good Carl, example of how it relates to people's ordinary lives if it can make shopping experiences better online. Yeah, not to mention the in-home replenishment product. That too. A couple big things they've rolled out at CES. You mentioned Amazon, up uh, more than 1% this morning, David. Some interesting reports, not just about layoffs at the Twitch division, 35% uh, would be about 500 jobs, but also the information this morning talking about some layoff reductions in workforce over at Prime. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on operating leverage uh, as pertains not so much to Amazon's retail business, but more the media side. Yeah, I mean, overall, I think there is a belief that many of these companies are so-called getting fit in the same way that a year ago Meta did. Uh, uh, of course, much to the happiness of many of its shareholders, enhancing margins in a significant way. Remember Barton Crockett, the Rosenblatt analyst we had on yesterday, talking about Amazon being one of his favorites as a result of what he does believe is going to be significant margin improvement. Uh, and that may be the case across the board for some of these companies. Still, Alphabet, you know, I, I, I do hear they also are going to be much more focused uh, in terms of that. Shareholders obviously would applaud any efforts being made towards, uh, once again, sort of cutting costs overall. And as you see with Amazon, that is being well received this morning. Um, guys, wanted to move over to Tesla because that stock has not had a good start to the year. It's down about 6%. They have introduced uh, that latest version of the three. Of course, the Y is the biggest selling uh, automobile in the world. But, you know, continued Carl decline in EV used car prices, perhaps pressuring the lack of that $7,500 tax credit on many of the models as a result of the composition of the battery. Hard to always say here. Obviously, the stock has done well over the last year, but, uh, but still not a great start. And should point out, by the way, Rivian and Lucid also down actually much more sharply so far in these in this brief uh, period so far for the year. Yeah, I, a few other things in EVs this morning. One is uh, Benzinga report, David, about Hertz uh, unloading some of their uh, Tesla uh, cars from their fleet at some discounts. Uh, we've heard, we've, they've talked uh, broadly about uh, the challenges in incorporating them into their model. Air test systems uh, with some downward guidance on full year revenue, again, pointing to the slowdown uh, in EV growth. Um, and then uh, at CES, there's some chatter about hydrogen getting a bigger part of the conversation as the world sort of wrestles with that adoption curve. Hmm. Yeah. Um, again, all of which sort of adds up to at least some questions there. 
That being said, I think there is a, perhaps some hope for the re refresh cycle. You know, and again, we talked about this yesterday, but the increased level of competitiveness from the Chinese EV makers around the world, other than here in the United States, is also, Carl, got to be an issue to a certain extent. Um, you know, they've become uh, better automobiles, basically, is what many would say. Yeah. I mean, also the Tesla stock more than doubled last year. So always could be profit taking at the beginning of the year. Guys, just wanted to hit the deal of the day. We're going to talk to Antonio Neri, the CEO of HPE, officially now buying Juniper Networks for about $14 billion. Of course, word was out of this yesterday and we saw a big slide in HPE shares yesterday. Juniper's shot up. What we're seeing today is they're kind of flattish to hire. The company holding a conference call about it this morning. It's going to be an all-cash deal, David. They're going to take on some debt to do the deal, and they're framing it as a play on AI. And this puts HPE in, in, a, in a bigger position on networking, um, which they say is a higher growth category and ultimately should help, that, help prepare them for a future in which there's increasing demand for generative AI. I think there was a lot of speculation, David, that HPE would do a deal, not necessarily as much on Juniper Networks. The street seems a little bit mixed on it. I think financially they see it as a good deal, but there are bigger questions on the, the strategy, which is why I'm looking forward to our conversation with Neri. Yeah, as am I. Uh, the stock was down yesterday on reports of the deal. Of course, it did follow after the close, the announcement itself, but HPE stock rebounding ever so slightly this morning. You see Juniper there, of course, beneficiary of Huawei not being a part of, uh, of the upgrade cycle, so to speak, for so many telecom providers, given uh, the U.S. says no way can you use Huawei. Uh, so that's Juniper. They had that missed uh, unit, of course. We're talking local wireless access, so to speak. Uh, but looking forward to that conversation. Speaking of, by the way, Huawei, China, I would note Alibaba also just not been a good performer as well. Following on from last year's decline, well below its IPO price at this point. Again, it is still used perhaps as a reflection, not just of the uh, Chinese consumer and uh, consumer demand there, but also broadly speaking, sort of the sentiment around technology. That stock market has also declined so far, but you can take a look. Man, uh, we have seen, or many have seen much better days for Alibaba. Not the case for uh, Meta. Those shares up very nicely this morning. 2.7% gain for, uh, for Meta. Guys, I don't know if you saw this, and I, I, I don't think it's connected, but Mark Zuckerberg, it's always interesting <laughs> what he chooses to share or not share on Instagram. He's getting into uh, raising cattle. Um, <laughs> Angus and Wagyu uh, are where he's very much focused and feeding them an awful lot of macadamia nuts. Um, just an enormous amount, pound-wise. Um, you know, following perhaps in the footsteps of Ted Turner many years ago with his bison. Remember my conversation with John Malone? He said Rupert Murdoch had recently called him about raising cattle, wanted to know how much you feed him at elevation. But uh, why he's going to have a lot of cows potentially on his ranch there, along with his 230 plus million dollar compound, including that 10,000 square foot underground shelter. There are a lot of cows in Hawaii, if you didn't know that. Uh, and I imagine some of them are marks, absolutely. As we go to break, guys, by the way, I, you mentioned Mean Girls, and I keep thinking on Wednesdays we wear pink. Well, wearing, it's Wednesday. That, yeah, exactly. That's not why I did it, but I love that you picked up on that. Uh, let's check bonds. Uh, Williams this afternoon, curve mostly lower today, 10-year, was hovering just below four a few moments ago, right? Now, 4 oh, oh, oh. We'll be right back. 
Dow's up 91 points. Take a look at some winners this morning. Depot's in the middle of that list. Uh, Webbush today goes to outperform. Target 380, that's up 50 bucks from the prior. Although retail demand did weaken last year, they say those key drivers are now bottoming or reversing. Uh, they forecast HD to comp plus 1% this year, slightly better than the industry and better than the minus 0.5 they forecast for lows. We'll watch that closely as uh, the S&P is holding 47.65. Squawk on the streets back in a moment. Deal news in the tech space. Hewlett-Packard Enterprise announcing it has agreed to acquire Juniper Networks for around $14 billion. HPE shares fell on the reported news yesterday while Juniper shares up double digits. Here to break down the move is HPE CEO Antonio Neri joins us first on CNBC. Antonio, great to have you on Deal Day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning. It's been exciting for a lot of investors to see deal-making activity come back in 2024. How did this one come together? How, how long? Well, Sarah, thank you for having me on the show. I will say this is a, a continuum of our strategy to supercharge the edge to cloud momentum we have. And honestly, this is a transaction that will deliver significant value to our shareholders, but will make LHPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, more relevant to our customers and partners and allows us to capture the market uh, inflection points we see, particularly with uh, AI. So this combination will double the networking business size of HPE. It will represent 31% of the company revenues, which is equal to compute, but most important, it will represent 56% of the company profit. Together with Juniper Networks, we have all the capabilities to deliver an amazing networking fabric to capture the mega trends we talk about, particularly with the AI. So you would characterize this as, as growth driven? Because I think there were some questions from analysts of what the play is here. Is it diversification? Is it scale? Is it growth? It is all the above because first, obviously, it gives us scale. We have built an amazing business with HP Aruba Networking, but that was in the campus and branch. Now with the proposed acquisition of uh, Juniper Network, we are expanding in the rest of the total addressable market in the networking space. Second, from a deal perspective, this is a creative from a non-gap earnings per share and free cash flow uh, post year one close immediately. And then after that, there is significant growth ahead of us because we are addressing all aspects of the networking uh, stack as we call it. Your stock is flat this morning, but it took a big hit yesterday. And I'm curious what kind of conversations you're having with investors about that. Uh, obviously, it's a big lift and you're taking on debt to do this deal. But are you having are you having trouble explaining the strategic value to investors? What kind of concerns are you hearing? Now, obviously, investors are digesting the news and understand, obviously, it's a large transaction. It's $13.6 billion. It's the largest transaction Hewlett-Packard Enterprise has done. Uh, in the history of the company, but is is understood. Is the thesis is understood? We are creating a new company, Sarah, where the core foundation is the networking business, and that networking business has growth trends uh, all in favor. And ultimately, with AI, you need more connectivity than ever before. Then, obviously, they want to understand all the math associated with this. But remember, the value of this deal from a synergy perspective is higher than the value of the cost of death they will take it. And we are committed to maintain our investment credit rating, uh, which is core to us. We will continue to do share buybacks and pay dividends. 
And then on top of that, we will continue to see growth as this transaction closes. So when you think about long-term opportunity here, they all will understand it, but it takes time for them to understand the, the ins and outs. And that's my job with uh, the, the, the Rami Rahim, the CEO of Juniper, that's here with me today. We're having multiple calls with uh, uh, investors, employees, and customers and partners. Again, to Sarah's point, you're going to need to have those calls given uh, the stock did decline uh, markedly yesterday. You mentioned market inflection points. Uh, you said that earlier. So, again, I'll give you an, a chance to explain to those investors. What does that mean? Yeah. So, Dave, uh, so first of all, obviously, everybody's talking about AI today. And HP is uniquely positioned in the AI space because we are the market leader in supercomputing. We have an AI native solution for these large language models. Um, and the other foundational models now that uh, are being deployed. But then when you think about the cloud-native world, the ability with uh, Juniper Network is to bridge the two uh, worlds together. And that's a massive opportunity because the connectivity is the foundation to that. So AI is major inflection point. Then think about the ongoing digital transformation of every enterprise. And the first step to digitize uh, and automate and digitize your enterprise is the connectivity. And that's where Aruba plays a massive role there as well. But ultimately, customers is one integrated solution. And together with our computer storage business, we can address all aspects of what customers need into one integrated experience, which will be delivered through our growing platform called HP GreenLake, which today has 29,000 customers. Uh, we manage more than 4 million devices. And ultimately, we can create even more value for our shareholders through software and services. Yeah. Uh, Antonio, always a question of timing here in terms of when you close, and that gets to antitrust. Not yeah. that there's a great concern here for it, but do you guys need or are you going to even try to get China approval? I know you've sold your JV there. It's not clear to me that you have any real business. So is China and SAMR something you still have to get approval for? Well, it depends. Uh, uh, so first of all, we are in the process of selling the joint venture and we are on track to complete that uh, in the first half of 2024. Uh, so that's uh, that's happening um, from a regulatory approval. We don't believe it's an issue. There is a chance that we don't need to file for a regulatory approval in China because of the thresholds, since uh, Juniper doesn't have a very large business there. And all our business has been done through the JV, which obviously H3C is a local entity. So that's a plus, uh, which we believe uh, give us a clear path to close the transaction by the end of this calendar year or beginning of calendar 2025. But I, I do wonder if, if there's going to be any antitrust scrutiny, for instance, on the fact, Antonio, that Juniper's 10K mentions H HPE as one of its principal competitors in the network infrastructure business. A lot of people think there's going to be overlap between the Aruba and the MIST assets. So, any Sarah, concerns on that all, front? I don't, but obviously we have to work through the process uh, and we're going to collaborate with the regulators on that. Uh, let me tell you that the combination of HPE and Juniper is still significant smaller than the other ones, uh, particularly the large incumbent. So we don't believe that's a, that's a challenge. In many ways, actually a good thing because obviously it gives customers choice and flexibility. Um, and so from that standpoint, I don't see an issue. From an overlap perspective, we don't see Rami and I see it exactly the same way. We don't believe there's an overlap here because, remember, Juniper networks to the AI-driven MIST approach. They have addressed different verticals with different type of use cases and architectures, where Aruba has addressed other verticals with a different type of use cases. So 
The combination of the two gives us the best of both worlds by integrating the AI-driven approach that uh, MIS has established in the market for the last few years with the scale yeah. that HP Aruba has built. All right, well, Antonio, stop, turn the stock around. It's positive now on the session. Thank you very much for joining us today to talk Thank through you, the, the big deal. Antonio Neri, CEO of HPE. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.